You may be seated. I want to invite our ruling elder, Matt Balaka, to come and preach the word. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 23 this morning. This is a very familiar parable, the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, we'll read uh, from 1 to 23. So our, our Lord Jesus spoke in many parables, and these parables were often spoken in the audience of large crowds. The Lord's parables had a couple of different effects to conceal things from certain people, and also to reveal things to certain other people. We read about this dual nature of the Lord's parables, concealing and revealing, in Mark's account of the parable of the sower. Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables to utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That's Matthew 13, 35, to utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That, that should grab our attention. Jesus is revealing in his word during his earthly ministry that which has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And in Mark 4.11, Jesus says to the twelve that to them has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so we have our Lord telling us a secret about the kingdom of God this morning in the parable of the sower. A secret that had been hidden from the foundation of the world. And this particular parable is unique. The parable this morning is called a key to understand all of the parables. That's Mark 4.13. The Lord's parables in a general statement have to do with the impact of the word of God among mankind. Many of the Lord's parables have to do with distinguishing those who by faith truly belong to Christ and those who don't. There's the parable of the sower that we're looking at this morning. There's the parable of the weeds. There are the two sons, the ten virgins, the two debtors, the sheep and the goats, the tares, the talents, the Pharisee and the publican, the dragnet, etc. We understand that the visible church is a mixed body of true and false brothers and sisters. And we know that the Lord intended it to be this way. We know this first because God has ordained all things to come to pass. And we know because in a later parable, the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, 24, the master of the field tells his servants to let the weeds and the wheat grow together until the time of harvest. And so I expect this morning that our congregation, like every other congregation, is a mixed body. The word of God this morning, which will be an occasion of seed sowing, is going to land differently on different kinds of people. Every single person here this morning is represented in this parable. You sitting on that pew right where you are are a kind of soil that Jesus speaks about, and so am I. And so my prayer is that the Lord would bring sharp conviction to those who require it and sweet gospel comfort to those who need it. I trust that the Lord will administer to each according to what he understands is needed. 
So let's pray and then we'll read our text. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. We are grateful for the parables that were given to us by Jesus himself. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be working here this morning as we read your word, that your people may may be comforted with your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 13. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good ground and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their, uh, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Amen. This is God's word. So we'll be looking at three things this morning. Uh, first, we'll walk through the parable with some commentary. Then we'll distinguish between authentic fruit and phony fruit. And lastly, we will give assurance of salvation to God's people. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith recognizes that not all things in Scripture are equally plain to our understanding. Peter said of Paul that some of his writings were hard to understand. But the parable of the sower is one of the places in Scripture that is plain. Our Lord meant it to be this way. He gave us in all of the synoptic gospels an explanation of this parable. The seed, we are told in Matthew 13, 19, is the word of the kingdom of God. The seed is the message of God bringing his kingdom to this world in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sower is the one who is spreading that word. Christ himself sowed the word of his own kingdom and his own gospel, and Christians, those who follow Christ, are called to participate in sowing that same word. The contrast in this parable is not in what is sown, but rather onto what type of ground the seed is sown. And so we're given four types of ground. There's the ground that is along the path, there's the rocky ground, the ground among thorns, and then the ground of good soil. Verse 19 speaks of the seed being sown in the heart. So the four types of ground are really four types of hearts. And heart in scripture refers to the center of a person, the true, the true nature of a person. So we're dealing with four different types of people. As we walk through these different types, you should be thinking what type of person you are. Who are the along the path type people? Luke 8.5 speaks of the along the path type people as those who trample the seed underfoot. We are also told of these people that the devil comes and snatches away the seed that has been sown in them. Notice then the culpability and guilt of this type of person. Yes, the devil is working to pull away any truth from them, but they are also working to trample underfoot the good news that has been shared to them. They hear what is being told to them with a posture of carelessness. It's, it's in one ear and out the other. And that carelessness is sin. To fail to respond properly to the word of the kingdom of God exposes wretched sinfulness. Romans 1 tells us that unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so how many churchgoers sit Sunday after Sunday in gospel preaching churches with this sinful posture? Then we have the rocky ground type people. How different they are then from the along the path type people. The rocky ground type people are not trampling the seed underfoot. Nope, not at all. They hear the word and in verse 20, immediately receive it with joy. Maybe the preaching of the gospel even brings them to tears. But don't forget as the hymn Rock of Ages teaches, tears could flow forever without atoning for a single sin. This rocky ground person may, for all the world, look like a genuine Christian. But verse 21 tells us that they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, and we don't know how long that while is, but fall away when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the very word that caused them so much joy. The gospel message uh, that produced joy in them at one time is now causing them trouble. Oh, how they love the gospel when everything is going well for them. But when a time of testing comes, as Luke puts it, they fall away. The gospel is good news so long as they, that gospel doesn't cause them any trouble. 
Then we move to the among thorns type people. Notice now the contrast between the among thorns type people and the rocky ground type people. The rocky ground type people fall away at some point. They go out from us to show that they were never really of us, 1 John 2.19. They cease at some point to associate with the visible church, but not so with the among thorns type people. These type of people stick around. They may not be discovered as false brothers until the last day. They may sit at church and be part of the body life until the day they die. Well then, what's the problem with these among thorns type people? Certain things of this world choke the seed that was sown in their heart. And the seed, remember the gospel of the kingdom, proves unfruitful in them. What are these thorns that are doing the choking? The deceitfulness of riches, cares of the world, and the desire for other things. We'll start with the deceitfulness of riches. That's a, an interesting phrase. What is it about money that is full of deceit? How does money lie to you and trick you? Well, the deceitfulness of riches is the false promise that your money will ultimately take care of you, rather than recognizing that God is the one that ultimately takes care of you. Why do I need to ask God to give us this day our daily bread when I can buy my own bread with my own money? I've heard this saying, and I, I really like it. It's not how much money you have, but how much of you your money has. Oh, what about the cares of the world? How many things are there to care about in this world? Well, they're countless. It's not improper to care about lots of different things in this world, but it is sin to let those cares rise above and choke the word of the kingdom of Christ. Remember what Jesus said. Luke 14:33 tells us that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christ allows for nothing to take priority over him, and rightfully so. And then finally, the desire for other things. Obviously, it's no sin to desire a cup of cold water on a hot day. But when the desire for other things, and fill that in with whatever it is that you desire, when that has a place in your heart above God, then, then it's trouble. Again, there are many good things to desire, but remember the words of Christ in Matthew 6:33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, finally, we get to the good soil type of people. These are the type of people that bear fruit. None of the other types bore any fruit at all. But notice that there is a difference in fruitfulness among the good soil type people. In one case, a hundredfold, in another, 60, and in another, 30. Matthew Henry also points out something that is interesting. The text doesn't say that the good soil was in an area that was free from any thorns at all. In fact, the parable of the weeds in verse 24 specifically says that the enemy sowed weeds among the wheat and the master let them grow side by side. So the good soil people do not produce fruit in a secluded field where no thorns or, or weeds are present. On the contrary, their fruit is produced often in the midst of trials and temptations. Remember the things which attack all Christians until the day they die, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
In the instance of the along the path type folks, the rocky ground type folks, and the among thorn type folks, the world, the flesh, and the devil overcome, and no fruit is produced at all. But even among the good soil folks, Satan is still at work to trouble you. Your flesh is still at war within the spirit, or within you, with, with your spirit, and the, the world still hangs shiny lures in front of your face. You produce fruit, sure enough, but, but no one says that it's, that it's easy. Okay, one last thing to say about fruit. The Westminster Confession tells us that our good works, our fruit, as they are wrought by us, are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection. C.S. Lewis says something in The Last Battle uh, that contrasts real, actual fruit in Narnia to the fruit in the heavenly Narnia. Lewis is not here talking about good works, but his illustration uh, helps to draw out a point that I want to get at. I want us to get a feel of the difference between fruit that is defiled and mixed with imperfection and fruit that is not defiled and not mixed. So when the kids get to the heavenly Narnia, they taste the fruit there, and Lewis says this, what was, it, what was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull, and the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and woody, and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour. So our good works, the fruit that we produce as Christians, are a far cry from perfect. Yet, God in his word calls this same fruit good, not perfect by any stretch, but good nevertheless. Let's talk now about the difference between authentic fruit and phony fruit. This parable unmistakably calls us to recognize fruitfulness over against unfruitfulness. And the difference between the fruitful and the unfruitful is no small matter. Matthew 7:19 says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus also says in Matthew 12 that the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. A tree is known by its fruit, but how do you distinguish between good fruit and bad fruit? Let me refer again to the Westminster Confession, chapter 16. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. You want to know what good fruit is? You want to know what good works are? Go to the revealed word of God and let him tell you what they are. Only that which God says is a good work in the Bible is a good work. And the Bible is a big book and God has much to say. Are you in his word looking? Good works are not things devised by men. We don't define what is good. God, God does. Good works are not things done out of blind zeal. Rock of ages again. Could my zeal no respite know? 
You could work hard your whole life out of blind zeal and never do a single good work. Good works are not things done with the pretense of good intention. Just because you intended something to be good doesn't mean that it qualifies as a good work. Good works are things done in obedience to God's commandments. Isn't it wonderful that Brad gives us both the negative and the positive aspects as he preaches through the Ten Commandments? God's word is full of commandments and principles and implications that the child of God may have no shortage in this life of opportunities for good works. One last point on what does not qualify as a good work. This is again from the Confession, chapter 16. Good works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and to others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful. You realize what this means? In order to be a good work, the work must be scriptural and be performed by someone whose heart is purified by faith. So I've got an example for you uh, uh, about uh, one of these types of phony good works. Um, When I was uh, driving home from work once, um, just a regular, you know, drive, drive from home day, I saw this lady um, at the side of the road, and it was, it was a main street, and the lady looked like she was a Middle Eastern lady, and she was, with, she was with this little white girl, so this older Middle Eastern lady with a little white girl, and she was obviously distraught. Something was wrong. She was trying to flag somebody down. And so I pulled over, and I rolled my window down, and she says, help, help, please, uh, I, the bus just took off. I left my purse in the bus. And, um, right, and, and I'm, okay, well, get in, right? So I open the door, and she gets in the front seat. She brings the little girl on her lap in the front seat, and I go hauling after this, this city bus. And I knew where the bus was going because I was really familiar with that neighborhood. So I cut through some back streets. I, cut, I get off, and I, I catch the bus before it gets to its next stop. I leave the lady in the car, run into the bus, grab her purse, deliver it back to her, take her home, and man, that was a that was it. She was really happy. She was she was thankful for what I had done, and I, I wasn't a believer at the time. And I got to tell you that I told that story to so many people, and I I really wanted I I got a lot of glory for myself out of that story. But now, as a believer, I understand what I was doing. I wasn't do. I didn't have a heart purified by faith. Right? This was not done to the glory of God, not at all. It was done for my own glory, right? As I count that, and I see that at, for what it was. That was sinful, even though it was good. Imagine if this older Middle Eastern lady was a Christian. She'd be thanking God for, for some guy who helped her get her purse. This, this is a good, a good thing. This is something that, as a Christian, we, we ought to do. But again, the, the motivation was, was wrong. I had no... no uh, no intent on giving God any glory at all for that. And again, as the confession says and as scripture says, anything not done in faith is sin. That was a sin that I committed at that day, even though from, from the looks of it it was, it, it was something that was done good. So recognize then the situation that we're in. There are along the path type people 
who hear, hear the word in one ear and out the other. There are people who receive the word with joy. Remember, the rocky ground people receive the word with joy. And then there are the among thorns type folks whose hearts are not right with God, and they may be around us doing things that God commands that are of good, good use both to themselves and to others. And then there are the good soil type people, and the question is, who's who? How can you tell? Here we are, a congregation, a mixed body. Who's, who's who? We're told in Scripture when God selected David that God sees the heart, and we cannot see the heart. So Christ has intended for his visible church to be a mixed body, and we cannot tell for certain if someone else is a true brother or not. False brothers can hang phony fruit like so many Christmas tree ornaments. And true brothers may not be found out until the last day. Sorry, false brothers might not be found out until the last day. That's just the way it is. We can't know for certain whether our brothers and sisters have a regenerated heart. Now, that doesn't mean that we stop treating our brothers and sisters like Christians, right? Those who make a a credible profession of faith should be treated as Christians. I'm merely pointing out that we cannot see the heart And so we cannot know for certain if someone else's heart is regenerate or not. But what about our own hearts? Can you know for certain that you are regenerated? Well, we're told in Scripture to make our calling and election sure. In the Westminster Westminster Confession, chapter 18, of the assurance of grace and salvation says this, This certainty is not bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. How would you like to have an infallible assurance of faith? To have an assurance that cannot fail to be true, God in his grace and goodness towards us provides a way for Christians to have this assurance. Now, the confession goes on to say that Christians may be Christians for a while without having this infallible assurance. But again, we're told to make our calling and election sure, and so we should seek it. Go to the word for this. First John was written so that you may know that you're saved. Examine yourself in the light of Scripture. Remember, assurance is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, and those promises are all found in Scripture. Prayerfully seek the inner testimony of the Spirit, testifying to your spirit that you're a child of God. That's Romans 8.16. There are many areas in Scripture where a Christian can find assurance, but our passage this morning is on the parable of the sower, and I titled this sermon, The Sower and the Knower. So can a Christian apply this verse to himself? A tree is known by its fruit. Can the tree itself know with certainty what kind of tree it is by its fruit? I say you can. Let's go further with the tree and the fruit analogy. We have an orange tree in our backyard, and around January, we get some pretty nice-tasting oranges. And anyone who knows anything about trees knows that underneath the ground, there's a a root system. We understand that the oranges are connected to the branches, and the branches are connected to the trunk, and the trunk is connected to the roots. 
So if there is any fruit on my tree in January, a moment's thought should make me realize that those oranges didn't grow out of thin air. Any orange, however big, however sweet, however nice looking, was grown because that tree is rooted. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Christians are rooted and built up in Christ. So can you trace any authentic sweetness in the fruit that you're producing as a Christian? I know that what you and I produce is mixed with defilements and sinful impurities. I understand that. There's nothing close to a heavenly orange in this congregation or any other, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking if you, with honesty before God, can trace any of the sweetness of Christ whatsoever in the fruit that you produce in your daily life. If the answer is yes, then you need to know something that authentic fruit cannot possibly be grown on any tree that is not rooted in Christ. And so if you discover a single authentic fruit on your tree, however small it might be, you can be assured that God has given you a new heart that has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's a precious gift of God to assure his children of their salvation, and we should heed the exhortation by God to be all the more diligent in making our calling and election sure. Now, of course, there's a danger here to have a self-deceived person give themselves a false assurance of salvation. True assurance of salvation is not something that you give to yourself. True assurance is a work of the Spirit of God. Yes, I'm asking you to examine the fruit that you produce, but I'm saying that you need to follow the logic and see where that fruit is coming from. With true fruit, there is a vital connection to the branch, which connects to the trunk, which connects to the root. And remember, Christians are rooted in Christ Jesus. Your assurance is not grounded in the fruit that you're holding in your hand. Rather, your assurance is grounded and rooted in the person of Jesus Christ himself, the founder and perfecter of your faith, Hebrews 12.2. The comfort of assurance is found in the arms of the Savior. Now, perhaps rather than comfort, this passage is convicting you. If you find yourself as one who is along the path, or rocky ground, or among thorns, then I want you to hear this loud and clear. This is no time to try to conjure up some fruit. Okay? You can't tape a piece of fruit to a dead tree and pretend that you grew it. Repent of your sin, of trampling the word, of giving yourself to the deceitfulness of riches, of your idolatrous care for the things of the world, and of your many sinful desires to worship the creature rather than the creator. Put your trust in Christ alone for salvation. It is the perfect work of Christ imputed to you that justifies you in the sight of God. The good works that grow out of the Christian life are fruits and evidences that we have already been saved. Our good works are not and can never be the foundation or the root of our salvation. 
Christ alone is the ground of our salvation, and faith alone is the instrument that unites us to Christ. We are justified by faith alone, and that faith is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2.9. The recognition of justification by faith alone must be grasped before good works can be properly discussed. But if we have been truly saved, then good works will be growing in our lives. And the discovery of a single fruit traced back and founded to be rooted in Christ is enough to give you assurance that you belong to him. So in closing, people may go from being bad soil to, to good soil. God is still in the business of seeking and saving sinners. And I pray that he may be doing so now in our congregation as needed. But if you, by grace and through faith, are good soil, then glory be to God that you can never fall away and become bad soil again. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who testifies to us that we are children of God, says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christians can know for sure, for certain, with infallible assurance that they are saved. And this, this knowing of your salvation is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation in the word of God. And these promises, remember, are given to us not by man, but by God himself who cannot lie. Titus 1-2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this parable. We're thankful that our Lord has given it to us and that perhaps through this parable you may be doing work, uh, softening the ground of hard hearts and... Uh, and planting the seed of the kingdom of God in those hearts that they may grow into eternal life. We're also very thankful that you have given us your promises in scripture that all those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone can be assured of their salvation. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again, Matt, for that encouraging word. I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Lamb, Precious Lamb, hymn number 353.